0: This morning, we're going to focus on the first part of verse 10, which is love one another with brotherly affection. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would sustain the joyful, comfort the downcast, release the captive, and that you just in this moment and the moments to come uh, would show your face to us through the preaching of your word, through your spirit who um, dwells in us and speaks to us, uh, who, who helps us cry out, Abba, Father, reminds us that we are deeply loved. Uh, thank you for this uh, time in Jesus' name, Amen. So I'm going to invite you into my son's bedroom. It's about 7.30 at night. So just picture, this isn't a sanctuary. Uh, My son's crib is actually the piano. And um, the lights are dimmed, the sound machine is on, and I'm reading to him my favorite book. Uh, It's a book called I Love You Just Because You're Mine. And it's this story about a squirrel dad spending the day with his squirrel son. And the squirrel dad says to his little boy, have I told you today that I love you? And little squirrel asks, because why? And the rest of the book, the boy guesses at reasons for why his dad holds this deep abiding affection for him. Is it because I'm so awesomely good at finding berries? Is it because I'm so fast? Is it because I'm so handsome? And the dad's response throughout the book is, No, that's not why. And they go through a day together in this back and forth conversation until finally the day has drawn to an end and it's time for little squirrel to go to sleep. And so the dad tucks him in and as he does so, he says, Little squirrel, you are very fast and smart and handsome and friendly and good at finding berries and you are very strong and brave. But that's not why I love you. And his dad kisses the top of his little squirrel head and took his little squirrel hand and whispers into his little squirrel ear. And at this point, I'm like weeping as I read this book to my three-year-old. No, little one, he said, I love you just because you're mine. This is committed love, a love that says, I will not change. Come what may, because you belong to me and I belong to you. I will not change. And it shows up in the arena of family. You can fight and annoy each other. Um, You can annoy your brother or your mom or your daughter, but at the end of the day, you are still family. And we implicitly know that this love, this kind of love, is reserved for the arenas of marriage and family, not friendship. We have these clear demarcations about family love versus friendship love. And this morning, I'm going to argue from our text that I think our view of friendship, it might be small. It might be fragile. Because what's interesting in Romans twelve ten is that Paul mixes the two together. He breaks down our categories for friendship and family, and he combines them and applies this new reality of familial love to Christ's body, the church. And remember who Paul is talking to, writing to. These are Jewish and Gentile flavored house churches struggling to love and live with one another. And tensions, as we know, existed between these two groups. Folks who would rather have a church where they just sang the songs that they knew, where they celebrated the holidays that they observed, a small group where they ate the food they were accustomed to. These, But these people, they could barely stand to be in the same room. And um, here we have Paul calling them not only to friendship, but to the committed bonds of family. And what was received, I'm sure, as an outrageous proposition, it eventually became a reality. I mean, we have um, Greek and Roman historians talking about the early Christians and what they were criticized for, and one of the main, major misconceptions about the early church was that they practiced incest, because they, the way that they lived And loved one another and and referred to one another as brother and sister. The Roman, the watching world just thought they were a bunch of family doing incest together. (laughs) And they loved each other with these familial bonds of friendship. And the watching world took notice. So our big idea today as we set our view of friendship before the Lord, and um, I'm sure just as you come in here today with all of the joys and hurts that you have experienced in the context of friendship, you bring those to the Lord today, we set it before him, and we consider this, that genuine love turns friends into family, infatuation into affection, and selfishness into sacrifice. So first, it turns friends into family. So like I mentioned above, Paul, he mixes with our categories of of family and friends in verse 10. Paul writes to Gentiles and Jews, these ethnic groups struggling to be friends with one another, struggling to live together with all of their differences. And he says, be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. So these two words here in the Greek are eye-opening. So this word for brotherly affection, um, Paul uses the noun Philadelphia, which combines the word phylos, which means beloved, dear, dear, kindly disposed. It's, it's the language of friendship love. He combines phylos with adelphos, which means brother, or literally just someone who comes from the same womb. Second, Paul uses this adjective, um, phylos storgos, which is a word that actually, it's the only place in the New Testament that this word happens. And it combines again this this stem phylos, which we just talked about, with this word storge, a term used for kinship, love, usually, usually the love between a parent and a child. So what is Paul doing? He's, he's mixing the lines here between family and friendship. He's saying to men and women uh, in the church, love each other like brothers and sisters. Love each other like moms and sons, fathers and daughters. Love each other like family. And this would have been challenging for his audience because in the first century Greco-Roman world, family was everything. It was the central social unit in the first century. And this challenges our framework for friendships too because it hasn't always been this way. But today, the nuclear family is the planet around which all other relationships orbit, right? The nuclear family, wife and kids, and I think the single folks in the room, you probably feel this the most. You feel that reality the most because you've, you've experienced your closest friendships go from singleness to dating to engagement to marriage to kids. And you have just felt your friendships just slip through your fingers like sand. So what does this robust vision of friendship as family actually look like? So we're going to look at John 19 to see how this reality um, plays itself out in the life of Jesus. So this is from John 19. Jesus is, is nailed to the cross. It's, it's one of his last words that he says. Um, and this is what it says. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is hanging on the cross and even in his last moments, he takes thought to care and provide for his mom, Mary. And how he does so is so surprising. He asks John, the author of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to bring Mary into his home. To provide care and protection for her after he departs. He says to Mary, his mother, woman, behold your son. He says to John, behold your mother. And mind you, he asks this of John. He asks this of John, not his own biological brothers, which weren't actually at the cross at that time. Mary's own sons. He doesn't ask Mary's own kids. He asks John to take care of his mom. Um, And I think to Jesus' kinship, blood relations, it takes a back seat to our new family in him. And some of man, that rubs you the wrong way. Some of you, that gives great hope. So what does this mean? I don't think that it means that Paul or Jesus, for that matter, is asking us to care less for my blood relatives. I think that would be going against one of the Ten Commandments. So I don't think Jesus is asking us to do that. But however, I think he's asking us to see that our family has been expanded. It's been grown, expanded. It's no longer defined by blood and birth. It's defined by our being united to him. So take a moment and just look around you. I see all of you. I just want you to look around at one another. How do you see one another in this room? How do you see folks in your small group? If you get a job offer in Omaha or on the West Coast, will your familial bonds with us give you pause before you just take up your roots and leave this place? If we offend you unknowingly or get into a, just a knockdown, drag out fight, will you, will you unfriend us? Will you go to a different church? Um, will you avoid eye contact with me in public? Or will you stick it out, address the herd, just make the awkward conversation? And, and, and because of the fact that we are linked together, united in, in Jesus, that we are brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers to one another. So genuine love, it turns enemies into friends and friends into family. What else does it do? Secondly, it turns infatuation into affection. So we've already looked at the Greek here, but this word here for for brotherly affection is Philadelphia, which carries this sense of a warm affection for a brother or sister in Jesus. However, the problem that prevents both those inside the church and outside the church um, from achieving this this sort of robust friendship is that sex is everything. Now you're all listening. What? What did he just say? Sex is everything. Everything. The first century Roman culture, it wasn't too different from ours today. Paul addresses it in multiple letters, including this one, the book of Romans. He addresses the sexual immorality of the Greco-Roman world. And Paul would have similar words for us today inside the church because we think that that sex is everything, it's everywhere, it's under every rock. And so we place these, these legalistic boundaries around it. Just, just stick with me here. Paul writes elsewhere um, about this in his first letter to Timothy, instructing him how to handle non-sexual intimacy with his congregation as a young pastor. So look with me there. This is First Timothy 5. He says, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage. This can also mean comfort in not just a verbal way, but a physical way. Comfort him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Friends, I think that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Where Paul, and, and I'll argue Jesus, categories for chaste yet physical and verbal intimacy between same and different genders, we take this slippery slope approach and we put up legalistic guardrails that the Bible doesn't call for. The result is this fearful, affectionless relations between people of the opposite sex and a lack of appropriate touch for those who are just starved for chaste, familial, physical affection. So genuine love turns infatuation into affection. So how is this possible? We'll look again at a scene from the life of Jesus. This is from John chapter 12. It says six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served as per usual and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary was a friend to Jesus. She'd seen Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had been a friend to her. He had, He had. you remember this, he'd wept with her. He had shed tears with her in her grief. And she was devoted to him affectionately, um, tenderly affectionate towards him. And touch had been transformed for her in Jesus. And if, you know, just reading this passage, you can cut the intimacy of this text like with a knife. Mary has unbound her hair. Which for a Jewish woman in the first century was, was in in public, was a rare thing. It never happened. And she's using her hair to wipe this outrageously expensive and fragrant ointment on Jesus' feet. Some modern day liberal scholars, they've, they've looked at this scene in John 12 and, and its parallels in the other gospels, and they've concluded this, this interaction between Jesus and Mary is borderline, if not explicitly, sexual. But it couldn't be further from that. That is like, it couldn't be further from the truth. This here is affection, brotherly, sisterly affection, not infatuation. I think that the constant stream of abuse scandals, both inside and out, outside of the church, it makes this hard though, doesn't it? If we're not afraid of, of leading someone on, even with the most chaste physical affection, I mean, we're afraid of ending up on the news, aren't we? Of, of communicating harm rather than care, of sending one someone to the counseling room, right? So I just get that just our culture makes this scary and vulnerable. So, But where are you at in all of this? Some of you have been extremely hurt by the purity culture of of the evangelical church. Let's just name that. You've learned that you are dangerous, that you pose a physical threat. And so the the only solution is to close up all desire, chaste or not, close it up, shut it down. Some of us don't have a category for physical or verbal intimacy that that isn't purely sexual. Our imaginations and desires have been so formed by a small and twisted form of sexuality that's celebrated in our culture that to consider my fellow Christian as a brother or sister, it literally feels impossible in your body to do so. Literally feels impossible. Jesus wants to transform you and me. Um... Some of us are just starved for touch, starved for warm physical or verbal affection from a brother or sister. You don't remember the last time that someone just held you or saw you or spoke a kind word to you or or sat with you in your joy and grief, you know, shared humanity with you. So genuine love, it turns friends into family, It turns infatuation into affection. And lastly, it turns selfishness into sacrifice. So as we've discussed, Paul, using familial language to define the way of friendship among Christian Jews and Gentiles in Rome, it would have felt radical. It would have felt radical to his audience. Like I mentioned, friendship was one of the highest virtues in the Greco-Roman world. However, just the way that they looked at it, it was understood that you could only be friends with someone good. Or, or useful, or, or trustworthy. Because the purpose of friendship was this, this mutual exchange of, exchange of what was called beneficia. Which means just these, these acts, these voluntary acts of kindness. It usually manifested itself in, in like the form of money, or form of, of a service rendered to somebody. And you didn't want to get into a friendship with someone who was untrustworthy, because you might give and not return. You might not receive what you have put in yourself. And at its core then, Roman friendship, it was utilitarian. You helped each other. You helped each other advance in society, gain political influence, live a more stable life. Fundamentally, friendships were sought out for these self-preserving purposes. And in our culture today, man, it's not much different. I think freedom is everything to us today. And if we enter into a friendship with anyone, they exist, that person exists for my own self-actualization, my own self-discovery. If they hinder my freedoms, my ability to, to be me, then then I just get rid of them without thinking about it twice. We think that finding friendship loves means finding someone who, who won't mess with us, Discomfort us, change us, and someone who will accept us, tolerate us, celebrate everything that is true about us. And Jesus just had a different view of friendship. So let's look at this last scene in Jesus' life. This is from John 15. Jesus is addressing his disciples in this chapter in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. And he says to them, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, agape love, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So while friendship in the first and 21st centuries is mostly defined by by selfishness, Jesus defines it by one's ability to bear another's cross. He defines it not by the preservation of oneself, but by by giving, but by the sacrifice of it. So listen to this this extremely helpful quote. This is from Wesley Hill. He's a professor and a a priest. He's written a lot on the topic of friendship. He says, friendship then, for Christians who take their cues from the arc of the scriptural story, lives with pain. Friendship in Christian terms is, is all about giving up oneself for the sake of love and embracing the cost of such radical loyalty. Friendship, in a word, is cruciform. Paul talks about the self-giving love of Jesus, our example of friendship, um, elsewhere in Romans. So just listen to this. This is from Romans chapter five. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good or useful person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the that's the kind of Jesus friendship. Um. That he shows to us. Paul here is highlighting the limits of this Greco-Roman version of friendship. He's saying that the best of human empowered love is that someone someone might die for a person who is good or useful. Someone who has benefited us in some way. But Jesus' friend making love, it isn't compelled by the usefulness of its object. He died for sinners. He died for you and me, people who didn't want him, people who had nothing to give in return. And he says that this vulnerable, costly spending of oneself for another, whom we might not consider lovely at times, who we might not consider useful at times, is the pattern for our friendship together as brothers, sisters, Mothers and fathers. So have you experienced this kind of friendship? Someone who spends themselves for you. Who sticks out with you when you let them kind of into the inner sanctum of your soul. Who, When, when they see um, not the facade that you've put up, but just the real you. The real you. The, the beautiful and broken. The, the praiseworthy and terrifying parts of you. They see it all. They spend a day with you and they see you yell at your kids. Or they see you, they know just what you do when you're alone. Like, they, they just know you. They know you. And yet, they're committed to you. They say, I love you, sister. I love you, brother. Because you're mine. Because you're mine. Who is that person for you? Uh, another question. Who is the sister or brother that receives that kind of familial love from you? Who is that person? Can you, can you picture them in your mind? Would, would, spirit, would you put someone on their hearts right now? Do you see someone that needs that kind of love in your own circles? That kind of committed familial love. Um, Some of us have waited a long time for a friendship like that. Some of us have had it. Oh, we've had that gift, that given, committed friendship and we've lost it. Some of us are so cynical and hardened to that kind of of sweet, beautiful, familial love that we, we just, we can't long for it anymore. You and I need to, to present um, our grief to, to Jesus and know that it is a promised given thing when you come into the body of Christ that you, one of those, those spiritual blessings in him is a family. You get a family. You're adopted into a family. So we need that sort of love and the world, friends, needs a church that's held together by that sort of love. Genuine love, it turns friends into family, infatuation into affection, and selfishness into sacrifice. Let me pray. Friends, um, Lord, I I, I just want you guys, um, before I pray, to to just um, hold the hurt that you might be experiencing that I just mentioned. I just want you to picture it um, and kind of hold it up to the Lord now in your heart. Jesus, would you attend to these dear ones, these beloved ones who have longed for friendship, longed to be known and held and committed to um, and who have struggled to find that uh, in, in the land of the living. Uh, it, it's, it's this kind of love that you communicate your committedness to us through these brothers and sisters that you've given us in Jesus, and Lord, some of us are just, um, man, we just we've spent nights in tears because we don't have it. We long for it, and we don't have it. And so, Lord, would you um, just tend to them right now by your Spirit? Some of us have it, and Lord, we give you thanks for it. We give you thanks for a friend who, who won't quit on us, who who sees us as theirs. Um, and so, Lord, thank you for the body. Thank you for, for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for this family. Man, I just, I couldn't do life without them. Uh, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.